Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. Hello, everyone. It's Monday, August 2nd, 2021, and this is Mark Sly. I get the joy and honor of serving Lifeline as the Vice President of International, and today we're continuing our study on the book of Romans, chapter 2, and we'll be looking specifically in verses 12 through 29. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to go ahead and open there to chapter 2, and we'll be picking up where Pastor Chris left off with us last week uh, in verse 11. I love what he said to start us off uh, this week. And I'd just like to remind you that he said toward the end of our time that sin is not a Gentile problem. It's a human problem. Think about that for a second. It's, It's not a problem that simply affects a few of us or those of a specific demographic or from a specific region in the world, but rather sin is something that we all face, that we all deal with. And we're all affected by. And we see this at play straight away in verse 12 of Romans chapter 2. Paul writes, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now let's pause there just for a second. I'll be honest. When I read that part of the verse, I immediately am drawn to a thought of traffic. Specifically here in Birmingham, we have a Highway 280. It is the largest, most congested highway in the state. And oftentimes you'll find yourself in the midst of traffic, but not just simply traffic, traffic that's moving at light speed. There are times when I've caught myself speeding only to be passed on the right by someone else speeding much faster. And it's aggravating because not only is it the busiest and most congested highway in our state, but it's also the one that... uh, experiences the most traffic accidents in our state as well. So as that person passes me on the right going 20, 25 miles an hour over the speed limit, I think of this word, uh, this word from Paul it says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And there's times where I'm self-righteous enough to think, man, for those who speed, not thinking of the law or completely disregarding that speed limit sign over to the right, I hope they are caught. I hope they're punished. I hope that they receive justice. But then I read on to the second part of verse 12, and it says, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And I'm quickly reminded that though I may be pointing a finger or frustrated at the person passing me on my right or on my left, oftentimes that's being done as I too am speeding. I am going over the speed limit. I'm completely disregarding the law that I am well aware of and yet I'm still just as guilty of breaking. Because Paul writes, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now think about that. We look at that speeder, we look at that individual who's breaking the law, and perhaps we think that this person is ignorant of the law, that they have not been raised properly, or they are not aware of what is right and what's wrong. And seemingly, we can become very self-righteous in thinking that we are somehow better than them because we are so much more informed when it comes to what's right and what's wrong because of our awareness of God's word. But the fact is, we realize that 
if we are looking at this from a traffic perspective, that person may be pulled over and we may feel justified in our assessment of how guilty they were. But on the road of life, there are more than one police uh, officers on the side gauging the speed of traffic. And so just as we are pointing a finger at those who may not be following God's law, we also need to realize that God is assessing our actions, our speeding, so to speak, our disregard of his law just as much. Why? Because God's law isn't based on whether or not we're speeding less or more than the person next to us, not whether or not we are more or less sinful than the individual who grew up going to church, going to vacation Bible school or Sunday school. God's judgment of us really isn't based on a curve. It's based on something much deeper. In fact, we see in verse 11 of chapter two, even last week, that it says God shows no partiality. And don't forget verse six of chapter one, it says that he will render judgment to each according to his deeds. So there's no exception here. There's no, hey, this person knew the law, that person does not know the law, but rather we are assessed based on our deeds. And don't forget, we already have a couple of lists that tells us what some of those deeds are that God is going to judge. We found it in chapter one in verses 29 through 31, just a couple of weeks ago. It says that they were filled, and we're going to come back to that term in a moment, that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. And listen to this next one. If you feel self-righteous, then it comes to disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What's another list that you might ask would uh, also contain those things that God is judging? Well, we don't have to look any further than the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, where we find God saying, I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember to keep the Lord's day, the Sabbath, holy. Honor your father and your mother. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Don't lie against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's goods. All of these, they're they're not simply a matter of actions that one does, however. The sin that one commits, so to speak, is much deeper than just simply those actions found in those lists. I, I would echo back to that verse that we saw in chapter 1, verse 29. And I would go back to that statement, they were filled with this sinful nature and disposition. That word filled in the original language connotated an idea of being full of, being finished, being completed by. It's the thing that defined them. And it's the thing that defined us outside of the gospel. God's judgment of us isn't simply based on whether or not we are able to keep a set of rules and regulations, whether or not we are able to check the list that we make for ourselves each and every day and compare 
with the lives of those around us and our neighbors. No, God's judgment, his assessment of our lives is based on something much deeper. It's on the very thing that fills us, that completes us, that makes us who we are. It defines us. In other words, the evaluation that God is conducting isn't based on the number of banks we've robbed, the gossip that we've dropped, or the lies that we've told. To further this point, I just draw your attention to some passages in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of the old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Think of that, anger. That's not just something on the exterior or one's actions. That's something interior. That's a part of someone's heart their intentions, their desires. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. A little bit further on in chapter five, we come to an even more condemning passage when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, again, internal, has already committed adultery with her where? in his heart. So what Paul is addressing and saying that it is the doers of the law who are justified, it's so much more than being about doing the right things on the outside. It has everything to do with the very nature of the person on the inside. You can look in Romans chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 a little bit further and Paul continues this point when he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by very nature, do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, and listen to this carefully, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Again, it's not an exterior list of actions, rather that it's an intent, it's a desire, it's the affection, it's the heart of the person where that law is written, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by what? Not by how well they sinned or did not sin in comparison to their neighbor, but rather God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He is the standard. And there it is. This is the core of the point that Paul is trying to make about sin. It's a matter of one's heart. The heart being the seat, the source of our desires, affections, and motives for all we do and love. It's why we hear in Proverbs 4.23, the writer says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the springs of life, the heart, the soul, persons, motives, objectives, desires, and affections. These are things that God judges, not merely our actions. I like how John Piper addresses this when he writes, Paul sees that the essence or the root of all sinning is a presence, a force in us. It's part of who we are. It's called sin. For example, in Romans chapter 7, 8, he says, sin seizing an opportunity Through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now everyone agrees covetousness is a sin. Thou shalt not covet. 
found in Exodus 20, verse 17. It's a sin in the heart, and a heart sin that might produce outward sinning, like stealing. But notice, Paul says sin produced covetousness. Well, covetousness is a sin. That's absolutely right. And so there is a sin beneath sin that produces sin. Let me read that again. John Piper says there is a sin beneath our actions of sin that produces sin. What is at the bottom of all my evils, he writes, and all the evils of the world? The root of sinful action is a sinful nature. And the bottom of the sinfulness of the sinful nature is this, that we don't like the true and living God. We suppress the truth that leads to him. We exchange his glory for images. We disapprove of having him in our knowledge. We have a deep, unshakable, compelling preference for other things rather than God. That is the bottom, end quote. So what's the point? Why is this such an important thing to drive home at this juncture in Scripture and in Romans chapter 2? Well, I think that's found in verses 14 through 16 still. For when Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, and God judges a secret of men by Christ Jesus. So the work of the law is there to address one's heart, not merely their actions. And the measure of the judgment isn't a comparison with the person next to us passing us on the highway of life. Rather, God judges by the standard of Jesus. So if this is the theological core of what Paul's point is, what is the practical implication In other words, we see all the time in Paul's writings that he sets a foundation based in theological truth, based in the character and the nature of God. And then he applies it to our actions, to our relationships, to our everyday life. Those are the implications. So what is the implication that he draws our attention to here in Romans chapter 2? He says in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that yourself, you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And I want you to just kind of hone in on that phrasing. He says the embodiment, not just the knowledge of truth, but the embodiment, the example of knowledge and truth. Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. You who speed on the highway of 280 and then point the finger in judgment of others while you yourself have a speedometer that is far over the expected speed limit. Are you breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Do you and I embody as followers of Christ the righteousness of God. 
you who can recite all the laws and are aware of all the right things to do, are you perfect? Do you try to come across as though you are better than? Because the standard isn't your neighbor, it's Jesus. And that standard measures our motives. It measures our desires. It measures our affections. And it measures our actions against who Jesus is and what he, in fact, has done. Paul's question leads to the implication that people who have no prior instruction in the law are better off not having our opinion, not having our instruction, and not having our teaching, not listening to our testimony and our witness if we ourselves are living in a self-righteous, hypocritical manner. Listen to that, believers. Listen to that, brothers and sisters. The world desperately needs to hear of the gospel and of the holiness that God has called us to being made in his image, but they must hear it from those who are living in that truth and living out a life that is worthy of the gospel in which we have been called, not from those who are hypocritical, not from those who are pointing a self-righteous finger while we ourselves live in contrast to God's instruction. Romans 2, 25 through 27 says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. So in other words, calling yourself as a Christian is incredibly valuable if we're living a life that's worth being imitated. But if we break the law, then our circumcision, Paul writes, or our testimony becomes uncircumcision. It actually becomes harmful. So that if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written, have the written code and circumcision but break the law. In other words, our moral high ground is lost when the manner in which we share the gospel is mismatched with the way in which we receive the gospel. Let me say that again. Our moral high ground, brothers and sisters, is lost when we share the gospel in a manner that is mismatched with the way in which we received the gospel. Right now, politically, culturally, socially, our world is slipping into the mindset that whoever is loudest, whoever is most brazen, whoever is first to attack and most skilled in hyperbole, they are the ones who are trusted followed and believed. But this is a mirage. It's a short-sighted approach to an eternal battle. Christian brothers and sisters, remember that the end does not, it cannot, it will never justify the means. Rather, the end, the gospel, defines the means by which we share it. It defines the way in which we look at our neighbors and judge our own actions. It defines the means of the way in which God will judge us, being full of a sinful nature until we are impacted by the gospel, surrendering our lives to him as Lord and Savior, asking for the forgiveness of our sin and repenting and turning and trading all of that of which we were for all of who Christ is.
And so there are three things that I believe scripture calls us to remember in light of Romans 2 verses 12 through 29. First, we must remember who we were without the gospel. Romans 5 verses 8 through 10 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We must remember who we are, enemies with God, when we are without the gospel's impact in our hearts and lives. But we also need to remember how we received the gospel. In Ephesians 2, 2 through 10, Paul writes, And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, we are carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It was our heart that was the problem, that was lost, that was sinful. And we were by nature children of wrath, not just because of our actions, but because of who we were and the sin that filled us like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, he made us alive together with Christ. This is how we receive the gospel. By grace, we have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of our own doing. This is not how we were able to be saved. It wasn't by our own actions. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We remember who we are without the gospel. We remember who, how we received the gospel. And finally, we live for, uh, we need to remember who we live for in light of the gospel. Romans 2, 28 through 29 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Keep in mind that this message is for Paul and from Paul. This truth is something that he was confronted with first personally in order for him to be able to confront others, for instance, the church in Rome. So this leads to two things that we need to consider. Has this truth impacted every area of your heart? Has this truth impacted your affections? Has our view of sin affected our passions and desires? Is this something that we can genuinely look at and realize that it isn't simply what we do that causes us to be sinful before God, but rather it was who we are before the gospel made its impact in our lives? Has that truth shaped the way in which you confront others 
in humility. So Paul had to experience this in his own life, confronted with his own self-righteousness, but then he's also compelled to confront others. And in our roles as leaders, brothers and sisters, anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus is called to be a leader of others. Consider who is God calling you to potentially, lovingly, graciously remind that we are nothing without the gospel that we have received the gospel in desperate need and humility, and that we live for the praise of our God, not the volume and acceptance of our arguments. Brothers and sisters, has this message confronted you in your own life? And are we in loving and in grace and in a sympathetic way confronting others when they are completely without knowledge of what it means to be separated from God, or perhaps it's another brother or sister in Christ who feels as though they are better than someone else because their argument has been louder. Have we confronted those in our lives that God's given us influence over with these truths? And so I would consider, I would simply invite you to consider your own hearts. Consider those that God has called you to lead and not compare yourselves to them, but be compelled to run to them, to love them enough to confront them with truth, with grace and love. This is what God is calling us to do through the words of Paul in Romans chapter two, verses 12 through 29. We want to thank you for joining us for the Defender Bible study today. This week, we're going to be praying for specifically birth parent ministries within the United States. I'd like to share a few of those requests with you and just ask that you would join us in prayer for these things. Perhaps on Monday today that you would pray that women who are considering adoption for their baby would reach out to Lifeline, that we would be of service to them, that we would love them well in the midst of really difficult circumstances. Would you pray for our referral sources like hospitals and OBGYNs and pregnancy centers that they would connect moms to us so that they would consider adoption over abortion? Would you pray that women that we serve will come to know the Lord in his redeeming love? Would you pray that God will open these birth mothers' eyes to see that they and their children are made in the image of God and they are deeply valued by him. Would you pray that God would lead women to choose life for their babies and that they would consider adoption if that is what God is calling them to do? On Wednesday, would you pray with us for the women and men who have placed their children for adoption through Lifeline, that the Lord would comfort them Would you pray for their relationship with the adopting family and their child, that these relationships would also point them to the love of Christ? Would you please pray for our team as we walk with those who are grieving? Pray that we would point them to Christ in a way that is truly a comfort to these birth parents. Would you join us in praying on Thursday? Pray for families who are waiting to adopt. Pray for their marriages to be strong, for their relationship with the Lord, and for encouragement. Pray for families who have recently been matched with an expectant mom who decided to parent. Pray for these families as they grieve. Pray for strength for them to open up their hearts to another birth mom in the future. 
Would you pray for our families to remember that our goal is the gospel always and foremost and forever. It must be the gospel. And would you pray for them to have the strength to love on an expecting parent, no matter what their history is. Finally, on Friday, would you join us in praying that the Lord would intervene in the lives of 49 babies that in 2020 were placed in the gospel-centered homes. Pray for these children as their birth parents, uh, that their birth parents would see Jesus in the families that chose to adopt them. And pray that families would know how to disciple and care for these children and for their child's birth family. And finally, pray for adoptive families who have an open adoption. Pray that they would be intentional and mission-minded in the way that they interact and they love and support their child's birth family. And would you join me in prayer now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that God, in spite of the fact that sin wasn't just simply an action that we committed against you, but God, sin was the very thing that filled us, completed us, and defined us. God, in spite of that, you love us. God, in spite of that, you have given your son for us. God, you have made a way for us to have a relationship with you, and you did it at such incredible cost on our behalf. God, we give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all of it. And so, Father, as we are mindful of those things, we also pray for, God, that you would confront us daily with who we are, and how the gospel defines us. That we are no longer defined by our desires or the sinful nature that we once were. But God, we're defined by the life of your son. God, would you remind us that there are those who are still struggling with this. That have no hope. That have not given themselves to you and surrendered their lives to you as Lord and Savior. God, would you lead them to you? And God, we pray for, God, birth families, birth moms. As they consider the life of their children, may they view them through the lens of the gospel. May they see the incredible value of that life, especially within the womb. God, would you help them to consider far more options than simply ending a life? God, we pray that you would grant lifeline favor in the eyes of these birth moms, that we would build good lasting relationships with these families, that they would find lifeline to be caring and gracious and loving through maybe what's the most difficult circumstances they've ever found themselves in. And God, would you help lifeline to lead adopting families to be gracious and kind and gospel centered that, God, there is an opportunity not just simply to impact a child's life, though we want that to happen. But, God, we have an opportunity to impact the lives of families and generations by the decisions, the actions, and the attitudes that we bring to the table each and every day. God, we pray for protection. Protection of families who call you Lord and Savior, who are seeking to follow you. God, we know that the enemy would love to kill, steal, and destroy quite literally. So God, we pray for that protection. We pray for protection for Lifeline as we endeavor to care for and serve these families here domestically. God, help us to do it with wisdom, with grace, and with love. And God, we ask these things 
In your son Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study. Music